If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. The ushers will bring one up. Um, we've been working our way. I was, I was gone last week. Dr. Voorhees uh, taught through uh, Colossians, and it was awesome, and it was a fun trip for me to be gone. But we're going to be back in Matthew. And just before that, I want to kind of catch up a little bit for you guys. Just before that was kind of the, this is, again, this is the last week of Jesus' life that we've been working through for a lot longer than a week. But um, this, is, this is kind of the, everything that builds up to this point. And so Jesus at this point had kind of, he'd made his triumphal entry. He had, he'd cursed the fig tree. He had, he'd come in and cleansed the temple, which is where we were last time, where he's overturning tables. And we talked about the size of the temple and how, how huge it was and how Jesus was, was able to walk into a room with thousands of people and start flipping tables over and no one stood in the way. He was establishing his authority. And then the very question comes up where the, the chief priests and the scribes are coming to Jesus and they start questioning. And, and Jesus lays out a, a parable for them, talking about the two sons and talking about the one that, that said that they, they, they would do what he asked of them to do, but then didn't do it. And the one that said he wouldn't do, but then ended up going. And Jesus was, was pushing against the religious leaders of this day, the Jewish leaders that had established their authority over the temple in Jerusalem, thinking that they had done it the right way, that they were the, the ones that were chosen by God because of their bloodline tied to Abraham, and they were in therefore tied to God's kingdom. And they're a part of God's kingdom, and that's, that's where they are. And so these chief priests and scribes are, are, are offended by Jesus coming in and turning over tables and healing the lame in the temple and doing a number of things that, that weren't happening in the temple prior to this because of their rule and their right and what they believed that they could do. And so Jesus is doing this, they question his authority. He says this parable, talks about basically, look, they can say all the right things all day long, but it's a matter of what they do. And he said that the kingdom of God is, is, is for those that will end up knowing that they aren't who they are, or they aren't worthy, but because of that, surrender their lives to God and are welcomed in, not because they are born of some bloodline. And it's just in case they were confused, Jesus jumps in and says another parable, which is the parable of the tenants, which is where we are today. Parable, I want to again real quickly, parables are used usually in an exaggerated form of some kind of reality to lay alongside of a truth. And we get in a lot of trouble sometimes with parables because we try and define too much out of them and try and make them very literal or, or, or this is exactly how it would be. But really, a lot of times Jesus would use a parable to bring about truth in a different way through a word picture or a story. And so this story is something that, that didn't actually happen, but he would use things in the society and the culture that made sense to them, but then he would use them in an exaggerated form that doesn't really work or make sense so that he could drive a point home. And so that's what Jesus is going to do is just after he came out talking about the parable of the two sons, and he said that, that, that even afterwards that they wouldn't believe in Jesus because of who he was. So he didn't even answer their question before about John the Baptist. And so it's, he's, just, he's just dealing with these religious leaders in a really interesting way. And they're not confused. In case you wonder, they're not confused at this point really who he's talking about in these parables. They're, they're offended by what he's saying. They are, they are upset, and we keep hearing that they don't know what to do because of the crowd. Remember, there's thousands of people around. People are, are crying that he's the son of David. Kids are, are calling him. They're saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David. And he's saying, if they don't do it, the rocks will. This is the way it's supposed to be. And so the, the religious leaders are in this unique spot where they can't allow an uprising to take or usurp their authority because they have this really unique deal with Rome. Where over the temple and in this setting right here where they are, they have authority and they've been given permission by Rome who is, who is over them to say, okay, you can do what you need to do in this whole religious thing here. We won't bother you with that as long as you keep from 
any kind of tension happening or uprisings or, or revolutions or any kind of, any kind of fight or quarrelsome. If you, if you rock the boats too much, we will step in and say that you guys aren't capable of leading it. So the religious leaders are kind of back to this corner where they realize that Jesus has this huge following. They want to do something to him. They want to get rid of him. But all of the people, at least at this point, that are following him continue to say it, and we'll see at the end of the text, believe that he's a prophet. So doing something to him would cause this huge, huge chaos, this huge storm, this huge, huge uprising, and in in the end could ruin all of what they believe is is holy, the the temple and what they do and what their their, their life is about. And so they're walking this fine line trying to confront Jesus in a way that will get Jesus to to do something that is that could be, um, that they they can convict him of, 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 blasphemy or something else so that they could kill him or stone him or get rid of him, but they got to do it in a way that would swing the crowds. Well, if you've, you've obviously maybe know the story, but they, they get there. It's just a few days later, they finally swing the crowds enough to where they're yelling, crucify him. But Jesus is in this conversation with these chiefs, chief priests and scribes. And so these are the religious kind of elite, the, the people that he has vehemently spoken against through all of his ministry. And he lays out this parable. And if you've heard this parable before, it's, it's, it's one that doesn't make a lot of sense in our context because we don't necessarily deal with um, all of these things. But it, it has a, a very, very, there's about three things I think we can pull from this. And, and one of them is, is that Jesus is, is essentially closing the chapter on, on the entire book and saying, okay, look, I'm the Messiah in this parable. That's one of the big things that we're going to just know right now. Jesus is, by doing this, by talking about this, by using this parable, he's basically saying, look, the kingdom of God is at hand and I'm the Messiah. And everything that went before here, this is what has happened and this is where we're going. And then the second thing we can pull from this is, is that I believe that there are a lot of us in here that would be rejecting Jesus in obedience. I think we, we've, been re, we've been rejecting him whether we, we know it or not or whether we're intentionally doing it or claiming ignorance. Either way, my assumption is that you being here in a church, you have some view of God or, the, or Jesus or the church in general. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. But ultimately, my, my assumption is that you have some idea of what Jesus stands for and therefore you have either been rejecting or surrendering to that pull. And then I think the third thing that we're going to pull out of this is that God's ridiculously patient. I mean ridiculously patient. If you hear nothing else today, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to know this right now, that your God that created you, that knows every single thing about you, who knows every single hair on your head, he is ferociously patient with you. And we get to see that over the context in this one parable through the entire Bible. So that's what, that's what we're going to pull from this. So let's, let's dig into this parable. Jesus, so he, answers, he ends the last one with, for John came to you, in, this is verse 32, chapter 21. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And so he, he ends it with saying, look, the people that you would view the lowest in society, they surrendered and believed who, G, who John the Baptist was, and that therefore means that he is the forerunner to the Messiah, which is me. And he's saying, even though you see this changed, radical changed life in these people, you still don't believe. And I think Jesus kind of just exhales and then starts right back into this parable. He doesn't even give him a, a, a space for this. We have the, the parable in Mark 12 as well in Luke 20. You can, you can see some parallels to that. Um, here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and, went into, and then went into another country. Now, 
this is all something they're like, okay, great, a vineyard. So yeah, the vineyards were, were common things of, of ways of, of, of making a livelihood. And they, this, this landowner in this person set up a perfect vineyard. He found the land. He got a wine press in place, which would have, would have been needed to, to store the wine so they can press the grapes out and get the wine juice out. He put a tower in place to protect it, a fence all the way around it so the animals and, and other individuals can't come. So he, he sets up a really, really, really solid vineyard. And then he leaves to his hometown. And so if this was what's normal for this culture would have been if someone had done this, they had another living or a, a job or something that, was, that they normally would do, but this was like extra income. And so what, what, what they would do is they would start vineyards and then they would lease them out. The tenants is, is a farmer. And so it's just, it's a leased farmer, a farmer that comes in to take this town or to take this, this, this crops and to do these things. And so they would lease it out. And then that, that farmer would, would run the thing, run the crops. It took about three years for them to get any kind of yield or fruit out of it. And so for the first year or so, this farmer would essentially treat this land as if it was theirs because they were going to get a share of the crop and then send off to the original landowner. So this is a very common, common thing in their day where they're going, okay, yeah, this makes sense. He, he built a good vineyard. Good job. Nice work. Okay, moving on. Then it, and then it says, when the season for fruit drew near, now again, the first season wouldn't have had a lot of fruit, but there still would have been something to settle on this account. Um, drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go get his fruit. I mean, here's my part. Give me, the, give me what's mine. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. So they're not received very well, okay? So they, so they go to get what's rightfully theirs, and, and one of them gets beaten, and one of them gets killed, and then the, the last one actually gets stoned, which was, is worse than being killed because it's just shameful and then ultimately ends in, in, in death as well. And so this is what happens to this man's ser- servants that he sends for fruit, sends for, hey, this is what is rightfully mine. And he sends these people in and they, they, they totally reject him. So then it says, and again, he sent other servants. Now, we don't necessarily know if he sends them, like finds out a, little, a couple weeks later, like this is horrible, sends them, or if another year passes and then he goes and does that. So in this day, if, if the travels were, were, if they were long ways away, it probably wouldn't be something that they keep sending. They would just shoot for the next season. Maybe something happened to him. Or maybe he just turned around and sent him right afterwards. Either way, um, I think because of the way that Jesus is laying this alongside of the Old Testament, I think this is like a season thing. So the first servants come in this first season, and then the second season comes. There's more fruit at this time. Send some more servants in to try and get it. But... Either way, it doesn't change the parable. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. So this time he's like, okay, well, three wasn't enough. Let's send more. And if you're one of those servants, you're like, should I take a sword? Like, should I, like, you know, like, got a crossbow or something? I don't know what. Like, I feel like I need a shield maybe, something. Can I have something here? Can we bring some military with us? So there you go. And, and, he's, and, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed Okay, again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. So here they're in this this ridiculous situation where at this point the, what the tenants have done was against laws that would have been punishable by anyone around them. So, so the, 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 this is where the parables kind of make believe in a sense. It doesn't make any sense at all for this landowner to just keep sending people in to try and get his stuff when he had complete right to have the government or anyone else jump in and they would have just, just destroyed that idea. Like they would, have, they would imprison those people. Those people have been in so much trouble. They've been in so much trouble. But this isn't about just a typical landowner, right? This is, this is something drastically different. So, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, 
they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So what's unique about this is if this, this is something that was true, 90% of, of land rights was kind of squatters. So here are, here are these, these farmers, these tenants that, that believe that they want all of this vineyard. And so they kill the servants, so they can't do it. Now they're in the spot where at three years, it's, it's essentially theirs because they've kept all the profits. Well, the son's showing up. And so in their mind, they're most likely thinking, okay, well, if the son's coming, the landowner himself must be gone, must be dead, must be out of the picture. So if we take the son out, the good news is this is ours. There's no one to come claim this, and it's now all ours. And so they take him out of the vineyard, which is, is key because, again, if they had killed him in the vineyard, it would have made the entire vineyard unclean because of the spilled blood or death. And so they take him out of the vineyard and they kill him. And that's the end of this story. This, it seems like this is, this is really, really sad, right? Like, what? You send your son and they won't even respect your son. He actually believes, the landlord believes that they'll respect his son. And they, they get greedy. They get selfish and say, no, no, this land is ours. I want to run it my way. I want to do it my own way. And I'm going to do whatever I can. And anyone that gets in the way of it is going to be put to death. So then Jesus, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? So Jesus poses this question to these religious leaders after telling this ridiculous parable. You got to, you got to remember to, to them, crops was their livelihood. We hear this story today. It's like, that man, that's, that stinks. That, that's hard. Like this would have been a really, really offensive thing to everyone in that day. So even the chief priest listens, this is ridiculous. Like I, those people, like you could, you could picture their anger at the parable itself. So when Jesus says, well, what will the landowner do to the tenants? And they said, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. So the scribes are like, no, he's going to destroy those people and give the, 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 the land to someone that's actually going to give him his fruits. So they totally walked blindsided into Jesus' little parable, right? Oh, those idiots, those, those fools. How could they? They're horrible. They're, they're ugly. They're sinful. They're, they don't deserve this land. And Jesus goes and he quotes, he quotes Psalm 118. And he says to them, Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? Again, a very offensive attack to the people that prided themselves in knowing the scriptures. Say, have you never read this? Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he goes on, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people, to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Oh, good job, guys, right? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him, the crowds had held him to be a prophet. So, so let's, let's, let's lay this, this parable out, what's going on here, which is just so unique, okay? First off, there's, there's a few characters, okay? The landowner is, is who? You, this is, who's, who's the landowner? God, okay, good. Okay, who is, who, 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 what's the vineyard represent? Anyone know this one? The people of Israel. Yes, someone said it. Thank you. So the vineyard represents the people of Israel, okay? What is, um, who are the tenants of the farmers? The first ones. The Pharisees, yes, religious leaders. Good job. You guys are doing so good. I'm proud of you. Keep this up, okay? 
Um, and then, um, then who are uh, the landowner's servants? The prophets, yes. Yeah, see, we have, we, have, we have so many scriptures. You know, like, I was just doing a little bit of reading here, okay? Um, let's see here, where was it? I was doing a little bit of reading and it's, it's gone. Okay, either way. Um, if you look at it, all of the prophets that have gone before it, like Micah, Zechariah, I mean, you just, you just take your pick and every single one of these prophets were either Amos running for his life, Daniel running for his life. They were either chasing their life, they were killed horribly, they were thrown in a mud pit. Like this, the prophets before of the old, you can just read through the Old Testament. It's quite depressing of how often the people reject the prophets of God. Ezekiel was running for his life, right? The, the prophets just had a really horrible go at it. Even Elijah, right? the, the, they, were, they were destroyed. They were beat up. They were beaten. They were stoned. They were killed. They were miserable. Some of them sawed in half by a wooden saw. I mean, like this is brutal treatment to the prophets. So yeah, these, these servants that are coming are the prophets before. There's, there's still more characters in this. Who's, who's the son? Jesus. Oh, I don't even know why I'm up here, guys. This is good. And then the last one is, who would you say the other tenants would be? It's, it's the Gentiles. See, this is, this is what's so unique is that, again, everyone in, in the Jewish, everyone, everyone of the Jewish crowd at this time and the Jewish leaders believed that they had a right to God's kingdom because of birth. They have a right to God's kingdom because of birth. And for us, that doesn't make much sense necessarily. We're like, well, I was, you know, I was born in the church. Maybe some of us believe that we're following Jesus because our parents took us a lot when we were little. Maybe that's it. But this is way stronger than that. This is way stronger. They had this belief that they were entitled to the kingdom of God just because they had descended from Abraham. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is he's saying, just like he did in the two sons, no, 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 no. The kingdom of heaven is about the prostitutes, it's about the tax collectors. It's about the people. It's about the Gentiles, the people that you won't even let in the inner circle of your temple mount. We can't go. They can't go through this first wall right here to start worshiping God because they're not worthy of your kingdom. So there's these characters that are taking place. Jesus is claiming to be the rejected stone of Psalm 118. He's He's essentially claiming that. He's claiming that, that, that God appointed to become the chief cornerstone. He's also the stone of Isaiah 8 that people stumble over, the foundation stone and precious cornerstone of Isaiah 28, and then the stone of Daniel 2 that destroys the world in rebellion to God. See, the, the, the stone is a principle that is used all through the Old Testament, and every single Jewish leader in that day understood that. And Jesus is saying, I am that stone. And you will reject me. He's, he's letting them in on the little thing that they don't even realize what they're doing. Hey, by the way, just, you know, you guys are going to kill me. You're going to reject me, but it's all part of God's plan because the stone that's rejected is the cornerstone. And, and for those of you that haven't built with stones, I haven't either, but right? So the cornerstone or the, is called a capstone. And in this day, the cornerstone is what they would set everything on and build around. So the cornerstone was the stone that was spent the most amount of time looking for imperfections and the right size. And they, they spent the most amount of time working on the cornerstone because everything was centered on that. If the cornerstone wasn't working, it would, it would be a rocky foundation. So the cornerstone is pivotal. So everyone understands that the cornerstone is the most important stone on anything that's being built. And Jesus is saying, that's me. 
Jesus is interpreting his, his own story. He's saying, look, guys, the landowner is God. He's already created a vineyard here. We, we, we have a vineyard. And, and you, you religious leaders, it was your job. It was your right to stand in the place and to lead people to God. It was your right to be able to, to move forward in this and to help others know who God is and to find people to bring in to the vineyard and to, to take fruit of repentance, the fruit of repentance and have it, have it spill out in everywhere. It was your job, but you rejected the prophets. You killed them, you stoned them, you beat them. You even had John the Baptist killed. You have rejected and rejected and rejected. So God did what only an incredibly patient landowner would do after sending prophet after prophet after prophet. If you have a lot of time, just read through the prophet books. It's, it's kind of like, man, these people, they, like, how can they keep giving up on it? God, how can they keep turning away? But you and I all know that that's, well, that's pretty easy to understand because we do it. And Jesus is saying, as after rejection and rejection and rejection, God sent his son, whom you would think they would respect. You would think they'd go, this is him. Look at all the good he's done. Look at his teachings. Look at the way he interacts. Look, the first time we saw anger out of him was just flipping some tables over here. I mean, like, this guy's pretty awesome. And you would have thought that everything that he did, the healings and the teachings and the compassion and the patience, they would have received him. But they didn't. They rejected him too. And if I were Jesus, and I'm not, just in case you're wondering, my assumption is that when he's saying this parable, he knows all too well what this rejection means for him. Do you ever think about that? He's standing days before he's going to have one of the most excruciating 24-hour periods of anyone's life ever. And he's going he's gonna to pay above and beyond the physical pain, the, the judgment of God that is meant for all of us. He's going to pay for that once and for all. He's going to do away with this temple that is elitist, that says that no one's welcome unless they come with the right bloodline saying, no, no, you can't be welcome unless you fix this and fix this and fix this. You have to do it this way and this way and this way. <laughs> He's going to spill his blood so that that temple system is obliterated and that we can now have an easy approach into the kingdom of God by surrendering our life to Jesus Christ. But I feel like when Jesus is saying this parable and he's saying, and you're going to reject and kill him, I don't, I've never been in a situation where I'm, I'm feeling like I'm communicating my death to someone for a few days later, but I, I got to imagine that was a pretty hard sentence to say. Like there's no, there's no hypothetical. The, the, yeah, the parable, they're all kind of lost and this is a made up story. But Jesus knows full and well that there's nothing made up about how this goes about, what follows through on this. And they rejected him and he dies. There's three things we can pull out of this scripture. First off, if we understand our, our place in this, then all of us would actually be the, 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 the sixth person, the, the Gentile followers. We'd be the people that are welcomed into the kingdom because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, not because of a religious system that, that, that requires us to do things. But see, I, my assumption is, is that some of us right now in our lives, we, we are wrestling to live inside of this vineyard. 
that God has placed for us. We, we struggle to see the fruit of repentance in our life. We struggle to see the, the, the movement towards growing it to be more like Christ. And so my, my, my assumption is some of you, because of your struggles, because of your mistakes, because of your fear, you're starting to believe that, that God's patience is running out on you. You're starting to believe that there's no way he's going to forgive me for this one more time. Yet, in this one parable, now we have it in a 30-second you know, set. Jesus covers the entire book of the Bible. I mean, you know how long, how many years passed prophet after prophet after prophet? You, you know why? Because the God that created his people was, was, was trying to bring those people back into communion and relationship with him. And so he was Ridiculous. In fact, every single business person would say, this is a poor business decision, landowner. Don't do this. It's not working out well for you. In fact, you are getting the worst end of the deal. Yet God patiently sends another. And some of you, you've been running from God and he is patiently just, let me show you this. Here, let me, let me reveal my grace here. Look, look, look at, look at, look at what I'm doing here. And you just keep running and running and running. He's, and he's just this loving, he's not up there going, well, sooner or later you'll figure it out, turn around. He's not shaming you into it. He's graciously going, no, no, I got a word for you. Let me, let me send my, my son to you. God is incredibly patient. He is ridiculously patient. In fact, that is, I think, the biggest thing you can pull, one of the biggest things you can pull from this text. Is it's, it's ludicrous what God went through for me for you. It makes no sense that he would go that far, expend that much energy, allow that much time to happen just so that you and I could have a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ. The second part of this is that I believe that some of us need to be more patient. I think some of us have, have, have given up, and we've talked about this before. Some of us have given up on friends and family. He said, there's just, man, they are so lost. They just, they're, they're out. It's just never, ever, ever going to happen. And so we stop praying for them. We stop believing that God is capable of changing anyone's life. You're a perfect example of that. But some of us are impatient with others in, in, in the wrong way. Some of us are, are maybe a little bit more like those tenants. And we're standing back and we're pointing our fingers at, you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong and you're doing this wrong. And we're not allowing God's patience and grace to come into that, that fold. Instead, we're standing up of, look at what you are and how wrong you are. And we're completely impatient with God doing a radical transformation in the heart of the person. We feel like we have to do it. Here, let me fix you as if we can actually fix anything. We, we lack the patience that the God of the universe that created us displays through the story of Jesus Christ. Second part of this is, I believe, is that is that um, the fruit that 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 is, is being talked about in this vineyard is in this vineyard is the fruit of repentance. This fruit of, of, of understanding that, that that we are a gross and broken people apart from God, and therefore in Christ we can be a new and whole and beautiful creation, new creation where He gives us a new mind and new desires and new heart, and He starts transforming us from inside and then makes us into something else that looks more and more like Jesus Christ over the the course of our life. So, so if we are in the vineyard, 
as a follower of Jesus, then we are to live a life of repentance. The fruit that comes out of us is repentance. It's this, it's this word that no one likes to talk about really, right? This is, I was wrong. I messed up. Forgive me. Repentant. What I did sinned against God, sinned against this person, and I, I want to be in the fruit of that. And so when we're in this vineyard, we're to not be rejecting God's word when it convicts us or confronts us in our lives. Instead, we should be allowing it to speak into our life and as painful it is, be repentant when it defines in you, hey, this isn't the way that God created you. Hey, hey, when he, when he utters those words, I've made you for something more than what you're doing. I've made, you are so much more valuable than what you're doing and we gotta let his words come in and not reject them. You gotta let the word of truth come in and not reject it. And the third thing is, is I think that comes out of this is that we're here for a purpose. This is a unique thing, this parable. Again, we can take anything we want out of this parable necessarily. There's, this could go a number of ways. But one of the things I believe that comes very clearly out of this is that you're set in the vineyard for a purpose. You're in there for a purpose. You, you, are, you are meant to work. You're meant to till, and at times you're going you're gonna to work at, at cutting back crops, and you're going to water, and you're going to do this work. You have a role. So if you are a follower of Jesus, you are in the vineyard. You have a job. Stop sitting on your hands and being lazy and pretending like this doesn't have anything to do with the rest of your life. The, the, God, in the end, Jesus doesn't say, the vineyard's going away. No, he says, I'm just going to put the right people in the vineyard. Another thing that we, we pull out of this is that even though God is incredibly patient, um, we know that ultimately there will be a judgment in this. We know that ultimately that, that, that if, if the chief, in this setting, if the, the tenants did not repent of their actions, a just God will judge justly. And so we see in Jesus Christ, despite his incredible patience, He's willing to die on the cross for you and I and his willingness to, to give us a space to work in the vineyard and to do those things. To be a part of this vineyard is to be surrendered to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. There is no other way. And the scribes and the chief priests and everyone else kept wanting to do something other than Jesus. The silly thing is they, they've been working their way up to Jesus, but when he came, they rejected him. I think some of us, some of us wanted to be Jesus plus or maybe kind of this way. It doesn't, I mean, not all Jesus. But I can tell you right now, whatever you build on that isn't the cornerstone of Jesus Christ, unfortunately, will be crushed. It will not stand the test. It will not stand firm. The cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So, so moment of, of truth for all of us. Is, is Jesus the cornerstone of your life? Right? I mean, I mean, like the, the, everything else is built on. And for some of you, you're like, man, I, I gave up on that a long time ago. Man, you're here and I believe God is pursuing you. He is, he is not giving up on you. You are not too far. You're not too gone. You're not out of his reach. Some of you, you would say that Jesus is the cornerstone, but you started building a shed over here that makes no sense at all. And you got, yeah, yeah, Jesus is my cornerstone, but man, look at this cool shed. I mean, like, it's, it's, I'm putting windows in it, right? It's pretty awesome. Some of the guys are like, yeah, it's like a man cave, right? It's going to be awesome. 
and you're spending all this time building on something that means nothing. When you have a role in the vineyard that is founded on Jesus Christ, but you're distracted, I, I think it's, it's time for you to break out a sledgehammer and have it, one of those, like, like those building shows, you know, where they thrash the house first. Like, have one of those moments. Just destroy the house. Destroy the shed because you're, you're building on something that will not last and is not of value. And, and I, I joke, guys, I joke. But that's a serious offense. I mean, just, just, think, just think real quickly. What did God do so that you and I could have a cornerstone to build on? And I don't mean this in a guilting way. I mean this in a, look at the amount of love and patience and pain he endured for you and I to be in a right relationship with him. Why then would we say we believe that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone and start building a shed over here? We have a role and a purpose and a job, and it is to be a part of his kingdom, to share the good news, the gospel with everyone. And some of us, we, we've gotten distracted. We've gotten mixed up, and we're, we're over here. But ultimately, what, what this parable defines for all of us is that Jesus is the only way for eternal life. There is no other option. So you have to deal with that at the core of who you are. You can't, you can't allow anything else to come in place. The great news is that you have a God who is incredibly patient, incredibly gracious, incredibly loving, but will also be incredibly judging in a time. You, you don't get one or the other, you get both. And my, my hope is that no matter where you are, no matter what portion you are, that you don't find yourself as the tenant that's been rejecting God's word in your life. Reject that, I reject that, I reject that. And none of us would say that necessarily. Maybe some of us would, but most of us are going to just pretend that we're that, that oh man, I, I don't know why, but that scripture just doesn't seem so clear to me. I'm that exception. That is a, a posture of rejecting. That is a posture of rejecting. That's not, that's a posture of a tenant that wants their own kingdom. That's a, part of, that's, a, that's a posture of a person that says, it's about me and what I get and what I want and not about the landowner and what he has done graciously to give us work to be a part of his kingdom here on earth. The band's gonna come up and we're gonna, we're gonna sing some more worship. And as, as they come up, I, I guess I, we're gonna hit another parable next week and, and Jesus is just gonna kind of drive the point home until he's driven home for us. But I want to encourage you, I want to maybe challenge you guys throughout the next couple weeks as you get very distracted by holidays and family and maybe finals and everything else that you're dealing with at work or life or kids. As you get very distracted, I want to, I want to, I want to just pose this one question for you. What are you building and what are you building on? If you look at everything in your life, the, the school you're doing and the, the work you're doing and the raising the kids or the whatever, whatever you're doing, would you say that that's actually being built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ? And I, I don't know the answer for you, but I, I, I hope, my hope is that, is that it is annoyingly persistent in you this week, that you can't get your mind out of every single action you're doing as to whether or not it is of the vineyard and on the cornerstone or it is my own thing, build my own shed off to the side. And then for some of you, my, my hope is, is that, that you, you would maybe soften your rejection. You've, you've, maybe you've got great reasons. People have been a really, really harsh 
to you or you've, you've experienced so much hurt that you have so many reasons to reject the truth. And maybe just, maybe just for a moment, you can think back to what Jesus was thinking about, knowing that he was ultimately going to be rejected one last time. That would pay for absolutely everything. And maybe just, maybe put your arms down for a little bit. Let, let the Spirit of God work on you. And I promise you it's scary. It's, it's painful. It's, it's not easy. But I promise you in the end, in the end, the, the best spot to be would be in the vineyard building on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It's the only spot worth being in. Anything else is going to burn away, be crushed, be destroyed, and ultimately separate from God. Let me pray. God, thank you for your patience with me. Thinking about uh, just the, the stupid things that I've done over my life again and again and again. Knowing that you have, you have taken the patience that you showed in um, the scriptures and have applied that to me individually is just uh, more proof of how loving and, and gracious you are, God. Lord, I pray for every single person in the room, whether we are, we are struggling to, to, to build on the cornerstone, whether we are rejecting you, whether we are, um, maybe we're in the vineyard and we're working, we just don't know what we're doing right now. God, I pray that you would just give each of us clarity, that your spirit would invade our hearts. He would, he would, you'd point us to the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. God, forgive those of us in the room that continually run from the cornerstone, those of us that, that change it from a shed to a pool house to whatever else we like to try and build on the outside, God, forgive us for that. I pray that you would, you would graciously come in and sledgehammer anything we're trying to build that isn't of you, God, and draw us back to you in a way that, that ultimately we can stand knowing that we aren't rejecting you, God, but we are giving you the fruits of this vineyard. We're giving you the fruits of repentance. We're giving you the fruits of the labor that is done for your kingdom's purposes and that you are making uh, much of your son, Jesus Christ, through that work for his glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.